No fear. No political correctness. No wokeism. You're listening to Underground USA. Thanks for downloading and listening. My name is Frank Salvato. Before we get into Friday's America's Third Watch segment, in which we talk a lot about the situation in Gaza and our southern border here in the United States, I wanted to point out some promising talk coming out of all places, the World Economic Forum's annual conference of elitist clowns in Davos. On the off chance that you are not paying attention to the narcissistic globalists at the World Economic Forum's annual Davos get-together, insert eye-roll here, I'd like to share with you my surprise at a question-and-answer session and a speech. In both instances, the speakers presented a full-throated condemnation of Marxism and anti-individualism, with one presenter going as far as to declare those in attendance at Davos a part of the problem. You could almost feel the crowd's righteous indignation. Starting with the latter presenter first, we have Heritage Foundation President Kevin Roberts, who declared in no uncertain terms his dismay with the entire World Economic Forum assumption that they are soothsayers and the future of the world. You know, one thing that Davos, you might say, and the people come here stand up for is liberal democracy. So if the idea that's going to be swept under the table is part of the idea... Hopefully that's not what he means. What do you mean, what do you think he means by retribution? Well, it's laughable that you would, or anyone would describe Davos as protecting liberal democracy. It's equally, Standing up for it. It's, it's, it's equally laughable to use the word dictatorship at Davos and, and aim that at President Trump. In fact, I think that's absurd. But I'm going to step aside from that constructive criticism and instead answer your question. Yep. And, and I'm going to be substantive here. President Trump, if he's the next president, for that matter, I think whoever the next conservative president is going to take on the power of the elites, which I mentioned earlier. But the the thing that I want to drive home here, the very reason that I'm here at Davos, is to explain to many people in this room and who are watching, with all due respect, nothing personal, but that you're part of the problem. Political elites tell the average people on three or four or five issues that the reality is X, when in fact reality is Y. Then to the speech of the day, courtesy of Argentina's new elected president, Javier Millet, who made a case for reversing course from the global march to socialism. Today, I'm here to tell you that the Western world is in danger. And it is endangered because those who are supposed to have to defend the values of the West are co-opted by a vision of the world that inexorably leads to socialism and thereby to poverty. Unfortunately, in recent decades, motivated by some well-meaning individuals willing to help others and others motivated by the wish to belong to a privileged caste, the main leaders of the Western world have abandoned the model of freedom for different versions of what we call collectivism. We're here to tell you that collectivist experiments are never the solution to the problems that afflict the citizens of the world. Rather, they are the root cause. Do believe me. 
far from being the cause of our problems, free trade capitalism as an economic system is the only instrument we have to end hunger, poverty and extreme poverty across our planet. The empirical evidence is unquestionable. Therefore, since there is no doubt that free enterprise capitalism is uh, superior in productive terms, the left-wing doxa has attacked capitalism, alleging matters of morality, saying, uh, that's what the detractors claim, that it's unjust. They say that capitalism is evil because it's individualistic and that collectivism is good because it's altruistic of course, with the money of others. So they therefore advocate for social justice. But this concept, which in the developed world became fashionable in recent times, in my country has been a constant in political discourse for over 80 years. The problem is that social justice is not just, and it doesn't contribute either to the general well-being. Quite on the contrary, it's an intrinsically unfair idea because it's violent. It's unjust because the state is financed through tax and taxes are collected coercively. Or can any one of us say that they voluntarily pay taxes? Which means that the state is financed through coercion and that the higher the tax burden, the higher the coercion and the lower the freedom. Those who promote social justice, the advocates, start with the idea that the uh, whole economy is a pie that can be shared differently. But that pie is not a given. It's wealth that is generated in what Israel Kirzner, for instance, calls a market discovery process. If the goods or services offered by a business are not wanted, the uh, business will fail unless it adapts to what the market is demanding. If they make a good quality product at an attractive price, they will do well and produce more. So the market is a discovery process in which the uh, capitalists will find the right path as they uh, move forward. But if the state punishes capitalists when they're successful and gets in the way of the discovery process, they will destroy their incentives and the consequence is that they will produce less, the pie will be smaller and this will harm society as a whole. Collectivism, by inhibiting these discovery processes and hindering the appropriation of discoveries, ends up binding the hands of entrepreneurs and prevents them from uh, offering better goods and services at a better price. So how come that um, academia, international organizations, uh, economic theory and uh, politics demonize an economic system that has not only lifted out of extreme poverty 90% of the world's population, but has continued to do this faster and faster. And this is morally superior and just. Thanks to free trade capitalism, um, it is um, to be seen that the world is now um, living its best moment. Never in all of mankind's or humanity's history has there been a time of more prosperity than today. This is a true for all. The world of today has more freedom, is rich, is more peaceful and prosperous. It is worth asking why I say that the West is endangered. And I say this precisely because in those of our countries that should defend the values of the free market, private property, and the other institutions of libertarianism, sectors of the political and economic establishment, some due to mistakes in the theoretical framework and others due to a greed for power, are undermining the foundations of libertarianism, opening up the doors to socialism and potentially condemning us to poverty, misery, 
misery and stagnation. It should never be forgotten that socialism is always and everywhere an impoverishing phenomenon that has failed in all countries where it's been tried out. It's been a failure economically, socially, culturally, and it also murdered over a hundred million human beings. The essential problem in the West today is not just that we need to come to grips with those who, even after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the overwhelming empirical evidence continue to advocate for impoverishing socialism. But there's also our own leaders, thinkers and academics who are relying on a misguided theoretical framework undermine the fundamentals of the system that has given us the greatest expansion of wealth and prosperity in our history. The theoretical framework to which I refer is that of neoclassical economic theory, which designs a set of instruments that unwillingly or without meaning to ends up um, serving the intervention by the state, socialism, and social degradation. The problem with neoclassicals is that the model they fell in love with does not map reality, so they put down their mistakes to supposed market failures rather than reviewing the premises of the model. On the pretext of a supposed market failure, regulations are introduced which only create distortions in the price uh, system, um, prevent economic calculus, and therefore also prevent saving investment and growth. Unfortunately, these harmful ideas have taken a strong hold in our society. Neo-Marxists have managed to co-opt the uh, common sense of the Western world, and this they have achieved by appropriating the uh, media, culture, universities, and also international organizations. The latter case is the most serious one, probably, because these are institutions that have enormous influence on political and economic decisions of the countries that make up the multilateral organizations. Fortunately, there's more and more of us who are daring to make our voices heard, because we see that if we don't truly and decisively fight against these ideas, the only possible fate is for us to have increasing levels of state regulation, socialism, poverty, and less freedom, and therefore uh, will be um, having worse standards of living. The West has unfortunately already started to go along this path. I know to many it may sound ridiculous to suggest that the West has turned to socialism. But it's only ridiculous if you only limit yourself to the traditional economic definition of socialism, which says that it's an economic system where the state owns the means of production. This definition, in my view, should be updated in the light of current circumstances. Today, states don't need to directly control the means of production to control every aspect of the lives of individuals. With tools such as printing money, debt, subsidies, controlling the interest rate, price controls, and regulations to correct the so-called market failures, they can control the lives and fates of millions of individuals. This is how we come to the point where, by using different names or guises, a good deal of the generally accepted political offers in most Western countries are collectivist variants, whether they proclaim to be openly a communist fascists, Nazis, socialists, social democrats, um, national socialists, democrat Christians, the Christian Democrats, neo-Keynesians, uh, progressive, populist, nationalists, or globalists. At bottom, there are no major differences. They all 
say that the state should steer all aspects of the lives of individuals. They all defend a model contrary to that one which led humanity to the most spectacular progress in its history. We have come here today to invite the rest of the countries in the Western world to get back on the path of prosperity, economic freedom, uh, limited government, uh, government and um, unlimited respect for private property are essential elements uh, for economic growth. And the impoverishment produced by collectivism is no fantasy, nor is it an inescapable fate. But it's a reality that we Argentines know very well. We have lived through this, we have been through this, because as I said earlier, ever since we decided to abandon the model of freedom that had made us rich, we have been caught up in a downward spiral, as part of which we are poorer and poorer day by day. So this is something we have lived through and we are here to warn you about what can happen if the countries in the Western world that became rich through the model of freedom stay on this path of servitude. The case of Argentina is an empirical demonstration that no matter how rich you may be or how much you may have in terms of natural resources or how skilled your population may be or, or educated or how many bars of gold you may have in the central bank. If measures are adopted that hinder the free function of markets, free competition, free price systems, if you uh, hinder trade, if you attack private property, the only possible fate is poverty. In concluding, I would like to leave a message for all business people here and for those who are not here in person but are following from around the world. Do not be intimidated, intimidated either by the political caste or by parasites who live off the state. Do not surrender to a political class that only wants to stay in power and retain its privileges. You are social benefactors. You're heroes. You're the creators of the most extraordinary period of prosperity we've ever seen. Let no one tell you that your ambition is immoral. If you make money, it's because you offer a better product at a better price, thereby contributing to general well-being. Do not surrender to the advance of the state. The state is not the solution. The state is the problem itself. You are the true protagonists of this story. And rest assured that as from today, Argentina is your staunch, unconditional ally. Thank you very much and long live freedom. Damn it. You can watch the full speeches of each at Underground USA under the title, Finally, the March to Global Marxism is Rebuked. It is well past time that the free world pushed back against the self-righteously arrogant globalists who make up the World Economic Forum. At its simplest explanation, the forum is nothing but an invitation-only gathering of snobbish narcissists who believe because they made a better widget and got rich off of it, that somehow they have the intellectual capacity to rule the world by whim. Of course, both Roberts and Malay will undoubtedly pay a price for the truths they extolled at Davos. The forum's Führer, Klaus Schwab, Why do we listen to German totalitarians about their visions for the future? Schwab simply can't allow nonconformity in the quest for the elite to rule the world. Just as history will see Malay as a champion of freedom, classical liberalism, and individualism, 
so too will those who voice the truth about the benefits of individualism, like Roberts at the Heritage, and the dangers of centralized and Marxist-based government as global patriots and defenders of inalienable rights and equality for all. To that end, we, those who understand the benefits of the free market and the dangers of totalitarianism in all its forms, must be vocal. We must talk about it and teach. We must start respectfully and tactfully talking politics with our neighbors. If we don't, because we are too worried about what they will think, the next generations won't have the freedom to worry about such things. We'll be right back with Friday's segment on America's Third Watch right after this. You're listening to Underground USA. Who helped cause soaring gas prices? BlackRock. Who contributed to outrageous housing prices? BlackRock. BlackRock and Larry Fink spent years harassing oil and gas companies, making them divest from fossil fuels. Now you feel the pain. And BlackRock-owned companies are snatching up houses, crippling families. Now BlackRock's former ESG czar, Brian Deese, is Biden's economic advisor, crushing America from within. That's what BlackRock is really about. Handcrafted, exotic blend teas at the lowest shipping cost anywhere. Hi, I'm CJ, owner of the Emerald Coast Tea Company. We ship our premium gourmet blends with Sindel, offering you the lowest shipping prices anywhere, while also being carbon neutral. Excellent tea at the right price. Check us out at www.emeraldcoastteacompany.com. Honey, this ain't your mama's tea. They're funding abortions, demanding Americans comply with their woke climate agenda. They teach people that the U.S. is a system of white supremacy while stripping away your Second Amendment rights. A California Democrat? No. It's Bank of America under CEO Brian Moynihan. There's enough people pushing political agendas in America. Your bank shouldn't be one of them. Bank of America. Their lies start with their name. News, insight, passion. AM 930, The Answer. Well, without further ado, let's uh, bring in, of course, our good friend uh, and regular contributor, Frank Salvato from UndergroundUSA.com and the author of the book, Nullification. Good morning, Frank. Mr. Kyle. (laughs) All right. Well, happy Friday to you. And uh, there is so much uh, to talk about. So, yeah, let's uh, let's start off with uh, your take on, uh, again, uh, you know, how many how many strikes does it take to stop the Houthis? Uh, is it 20? Is it 50? Well, what do you think? Yeah, that just sounded like the owl and the Tootsie Pop. Uh, right. That, I, I mentioned that earlier as well. So I'm, yeah, I'm glad you remember that, too. Exactly. How many of he'd always he'd always try once or twice and then just just chew it and then you know with this and break it off and go uh three or something like that yeah it was one two and three it takes three it takes three three bites three three <laughs> looks like the corvus touchy bob drop and i liked what you said and I, but i think it's actually quite accurate it's not working but we're just going to keep on doing it that's the way it's going to be uh this president will not commit to doing something 100 percent when it comes to attacking our enemies 
I believe he's too scared to go head to head with Iran. He he's typically just taking a knee to everything that they demand. And that gave Iran free reign to expand its influence throughout the, the Middle East via proxy terror groups. You know, they, they fully fund Hezbollah and Hamas. Um, I believe you're going to see more smaller groups start to engage against both Israeli targets and, and U.S. military targets throughout the land uh, or throughout the region. You see they already went after, they're going after Pakistan. You know, so where is the the strength of the U.S. Uh, using its military to be able to deter the mullahs of Iran? It doesn't exist. So how many strikes is it going to take to eliminate the Houthis when it should take one um, boy, that's a question for the ages. No kidding. Well, you know, the um, um, Iranian foreign uh, minister uh, evidently uh, was issuing a warning, a stern warning to the United States. Uh, but he's, he basically was saying it was the getting rid of the um, Iran nuclear deal. Uh, President Trump pulled out of that in 2017, as, as I recall, and saying, well, this is what's causing this problem, you know, basically. And uh, so it just seems like by saying that publicly, are they trying to dangle that out there again as greater incentive for the Biden administration to bend the knee, basically? They've certainly learned their lesson well from the American neo-fascist left. Blame others for what you're responsible for. <laughs> well, right. you know, you dropped out of the deal, so we've got to do we've got to execute terror routines. If you wouldn't, if you wouldn't have interfered and just let us go about what we were doing here in the region, which was, oh, I don't know, funding terrorist groups and throwing gay people off rooftops, we, we would have been fine. But you, you, you tried to tell us not to do something and now we're angry. So we're warning you who the hell is Iran to be warning the United States of America. Right. And it wasn't all that long ago, say during the Trump administration, that you had these different Arab states. And they were, you know, really kind of coming around or recognizing uh, that the uh, Iran wanted to spread its own hegemony, basically, through the region. And they were happy that Trump was doing what he was doing or bringing uh, these Arab states uh, along to say, look, we, you have a common enemy here. Iran is a menace to the region. Uh, the Arab states have all said this. They're, they're not simpatico with the Iranian regime. But that goes to show you how fragile the advancements that Trump made in the Middle East were. You know, if all of a sudden you have a, a regime change in the United States because of an election and all chaos breaks out because you don't take a firm stance with the Iranian mullahs and everybody just pulls back into their cocoon. Well, if there would have been true and honest advancement in the Middle East. Maybe it needed just more time. You know, maybe it needed four more years to be solidified so they could, they could rearrange their security in that region. Who knows? But if all of a sudden an election happens and the right person doesn't win in the United States and Iran can pull this kind of crap, that was not a very solid deal. And I'm not, I'm not, this is not to distract, distract from the accomplishment that was the Abraham Accords. It, it's just not with Saudi Arabia still willing to uh, consider normalizing relations with Israel. It's still a very good step. Remember what what happened with uh, uh, with with Begin and and mm -hmm. Clinton back then with the PLO. Uh, that took a long time to have come around. 
Indeed. One of the other things that um, sort of came up uh, uh, in terms of the Middle East right now, too, is that Netanyahu has sort of, uh, I don't want to say drawn a line in the sand, but he's created, I guess what they're calling a red line, saying he's not going to entertain a two-state system anymore. Uh, they want total security control over the entire area post-war, basically. And this flies in the face of what Blinken's been trying to put together, or at least saying that they're putting together. And once again, does this feel like a manipulation against Israel? Uh, because Israel has to do what it can do in order to maintain its security. Absolutely, it's a manipulation. The Gazans don't want a two-state solution. They say as much. The Hamas charter says doesn't want a two-state solution. And Hamas is the elected government within Gaza. Everybody falls for this, the Gazan refugees, the refugees in Gaza. You know, the mainstream media pushes that. But they have been autonomous in how they're ruled for a long time. Israel gave the Palestinians, you said, okay, then you make your government then. How are you a refugee in your own in your own state? It doesn't make any sense. It's like me saying, because I don't like the Biden administration, I'm a refugee here in the United States. <laughs> right. It doesn't it doesn't make any sense. So Blinken and the United States and, and other nations that are pushing for this two state solution that neither side wants. What gives us it's kind of there's a lot of audacity there. To, to walk into a sovereign leader's office and say, this is your future. This is what we want you to do. We expect you to do it. Don't think that you can just fight your war and win it. You're going to stop shooting. You're going to give them this, and then we'll have peace. Yet the Gazans don't want what's being shopped. You know, the, the arrogance of, of that idea that we get to dictate what's going to happen to his sovereign nation moving forward is insane we should sit down listen to what the israelis want to do they were the ones that were attacked and then if we're a good ally we aid them in that quest but coming in and saying all right well you know excuse me i just got finished with my fragua and uh, and and cristal and i think it, i think you're going to have to give them half your country and 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 give them some aid as well because that's the only way we see going forward you know what screw you and now okay. you've got now you've got people in in congress on the far left screaming to, screaming and interfering in the israeli elections that are coming up you know, we get we get offended because our elections are being manipulated by foreign powers, but we just routinely do it because of what? Arrogance. Either be a good ally or don't be an ally. But don't don't claim that label and then just turn around to be a totalitarian dictating power. That's ridiculous. So I support Netanyahu 100%. They should wipe this out. It should cease to exist. And it should have an exclamation point after it. If we don't feel safe, you shouldn't feel safe. Indeed. Indeed. Well, you know, President Biden was asked outside of the uh, White House about uh, the idea that um, uh, is there concern basically about um, uh, Arab, uh, Arab population voting for him, basically. So uh, this got to go into the hopper of how they're making decisions, obviously, about Israel. They're going to want to say, look, 
you know, we're, we're helping to, you know, get land for peace, all this kind of thing, because I think they are worried about the so-called Arab voting bloc in this country. Well, you, like I said before, Hamas was elected by almost 80% in Gaza. If the Palestinian people want to have peace, then they should have a peaceful mindset. There is a reason that there is a triple-layered razor-wire wall on the Egyptian-Gaza border. The Egyptians don't want them. Jordan doesn't want them. Every other Arab nation in, in the Middle East doesn't want them, including Iran. They don't want these people in their country. Why is that, do you think? Could it be because they're violent, insatiable, unappeasable people? That may be the question that we should start looking at. Why won't their own, their own Arab brethren absorb them to give them a safe place to live? Right. Why do they, why as, do they put as, a as would be traditions? Yes. As a matter of fact, it's it's even it's even mandated in the Quran that Muslims care for Muslims. Well, that's got to be a little bit more than just lip service. They don't even give money. The West is the one that gives the money to the Palestinians, not not the Arab nations. So this this incredible lie that it's just we, we just the Palestinian poor refugees. You know, I'm I'm not for for war, but when you're a terrorist organization, and that's what Hamas is, that's what it is. It's a designated terrorist organization by our State Department. When you're dealing with a terrorist group that is a legitimately elected people, you have to understand that the whole of the people they support what Hamas is doing. That makes it a very violent state. And if a missile flies, if a missile flew from Mexico, if they continuously launched missiles from Mexico into Texas, would we not call that an attack on our country, an act of war? Sure, sure of course. Then why is there a double standard for Israel? Well, uh, uh, I think because uh, there is this uh, this uh, this uh, feeling that that somehow Israel is illegitimate, or you know the Arab bloc is just too powerful. This kind of thing, it, it, it's mind-boggling because when Israel was set up, modern-day Israel, in 1948, that seemed to have been a victory for the world. <laughs> but now it's it's looked at as a this huge problem that if it only went away, all of our problems would be solved. See, that's a that's a minority that's a minority opinion. It's a, it's a false narrative. You've got this small group of people at the UN who are grotesquely anti-Semitic, who keep painting this picture to try and alter what the, the facts of reality are. If to the victor goes the spoils, and, we, and we've seen this in war after war after war all around the world, going all the way back to before the Roman Empire, if to the victor go the spoils, then Israel became ultra-legitimate in 67. Indeed. It's just stunning to me that, well, okay, you beat us like 18 times, but we want our land back. It's like, it's <laughs> like Hitler popping up and going, you know, can we get Germany when it was at its biggest back? Because we think the, 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 the end of the war was illegitimate. No, <laughs> there's, there's like, that's, you know, not going to happen. That's not the way the world works. Yet you've got a, a global body like the United Nations 
just mandating that well we're gonna we're gonna change not only human nature but we're gonna we're gonna erase history and rewrite it the way we want to because the people who are sitting in those seats now at the security council well they're disingenuous bastards well do you think that they could ever in the u.n say you know what we made a mistake in 1948 and we need to rescind that and try to you know garner international support because israel's quote so bad you know, they could move a resolution and it could pass unanimously. But you know what? So what? The, right. the United Nations yeah. is not a governing body. It's a it's a place for where talk was supposed to take place to avoid war and avoid right. genocide. And that's it's failed every single time. They're failing here as well. So screw the United Nations. We should <laughs> we should pull back from the United Nations and demand they get the hell out of the United States. They're useless, they're anti-Semitic, and, and yep. they're grotesquely biased to the woke that's happening around the world. 949-822-7959, that's the number to call if you'd like to be part of the program this morning. If you might have a question or comment for our guest, Frank Silvato, we might want to talk about um, what's happening in Texas. And, you know, we get a lot of calls about the idea of nullification, and uh, the subject of your book, of course. Now, what's happening in Texas, uh, because the big story there right now is that it's doubling down with the razor wire across the border in the Eagle Pass area, even after the Biden administration's cease and desist order that came through. But this is a case really of, of uh, uh, the state of Texas, and let me know if I have this straight, but of the, of the state of Texas uh, basically saying, look, the, the, the federal government is not living up to its mandate here. It's not enforcing the law. It's not protecting the border. So we are going to do something. That is not in controversion of federal law. It's actually stepping in, isn't it? Correct. It's, it's, it wouldn't be an act of nullification. It's, it's assuming the role of, of what the federal government is delinquent in delivering. Mm -hmm. You know, they're supposed to provide safe borders and, and then do diplomatic uh, uh, exercises for the 50 states. And right now on the Texas border and the southern border, they're non-functional. They're dysfunctional. They're not, you know, they're doing literally nothing but uh, counting with the, with, the, with the hand click meter how many are coming in. And sometimes they even can't do that right. So <laughs> right. Texas is, is executing what the federal government should be doing. It's their right to do so. If the federal government fails, you know, you just don't sit down and go, well, I guess we have to be invaded by Mexico. You know, the, the the governor has the right to in a state and he should just declare a state of emergency. I think he has an, an, an a couple different levels, but he should just make it an hour at one situation uh, at the border. When it comes to border security is a state of emergency because and declare it. The federal government has failed and therefore we are assuming that role. And I'd send a bill, you know, I'd say this. We're keeping this this amount of tax money back from the federal government to operate the border. And, and now you're starting to set the stage for being able to nullify things when the government, uh, federal government performs that overreach. Once you can, once you can deal with a system that applies financial pain to the federal government at the state level, then you, you can say, Hey, the, this federal law, it, it no, you're infringing on the rights of the people in our state. We're not recognizing it. And they can't punish, the federal government can't punish 
the state financially because that's how they would do it. They would never send in troops. That would start a civil war. But they would punish them financially with with uh, subsidies because that's we, we give Washington all of our tax dollars and they give it back after they grift off of it. If, if the state said, okay, you know, yes, the, there is a, an amendment to the Constitution that says people have to pay income tax. You know, I don't necessarily agree with that, with that, but hey, you know, the progressive tax system is a is an abomination. Um, but if, if the states come up with a way to say all federal tax dollars has to be funneled through the state, we pay it in one lump sum. And we, when we look at what comes in, we're going to keep most of the money here and, and not just have it go to Washington and come back. That, that's inefficient is, is all get out. You know, why mm-hmm. should we, why should we have, okay, we're going to give you infrastructure money. We're going to pass a trillion dollar infrastructure law and, and we'll use your tax dollars to give you back what we think from, from your courtesy of your centralized federal government, which isn't supposed to happen in any way. Right. Why, why not just keep it back in Texas and let Texas take care of the roads? Well, you know, you know, this is, this is how Congress gets to grift. They take our tax money and they decide what you get back. That's the most inefficient form of, of revenue generation. And, and it's unbelievable. Yeah. It's, it's a good gig if you can get it, I guess. Yeah. But, uh, but, uh, but yeah, you, but you're, you're right though about the, uh, uh, you know, taking over the border basically, because that, that is, that's an arguable case. I mean, that's an arguable thing. You know, there's a, a practical, consequence to not having the border uh you know be operated correctly or be secured correctly and it just seems to me that it's it's so fantastical that the federal government it is just not just messing up doing it it's deliberately not doing it yeah and then that, that means they're not executing their responsibility per the constitution they're not performing they're not keeping the citizenry safe so our, the, the reason there are 50 separate states with 50 separate governments, 50 separate constitutions, is to have a redundant system to make sure the people are safe. Texas has every right to protect their border. You know, they just do. Indeed. So Indeed. With, with Biden not, you know, not executing their performance down there as mandated by law, that, that's an, that right there is the real impeachable offense. Mark Levin talks about it all the time on his show. Everything else that's subject to politics, you know, you can argue that if you want to, but not performing your duty, that should have been an immediate impeachment of Mayorkas, and and they should have gone after Biden for that, even if it was just to rattle the saber. No, but you're right. See, that's the thing that the president did or didn't do, right? You know, there's an omission or there's a commission, and in this case, the omission is, is a tangible thing. And so you're right. That's something they could bring up impeachment charges, you know, and it would it would be a lot better to sell to the rest of the American people because it would be outside of politics in, in the grand sense. But um, I, I tell you what, uh, would you like to take a quick call here before we we got to we got to go? Sure. OK, hold on. Here we go. Uh, Tony in Tampa. You're on with uh, Frank Silvato this morning. Good morning, Tony. Yeah, you know, only the irrationally ignorant on the first topic still push Israel for a two-state solution. It's not going to work. We're dealing with generations that have been ingrained hatred for the Jews. 
Israel needs to just give it up and, and, and hold to their land, protect their own property, their own people. Jettison this to the, to the second topic. This administration and the likes of AOC and Joey Reid are guilty of murder and providing uh, profit for the sex traffickers because they are the ones who are encouraging the people from Mexico and other countries to come to this country to seek a better, quote, unquote, better life, and not knowing what their future, I mean, they're going to be given uh, benefits and handouts at the whim of those who are calling for their, their original Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, look, man, um, there's a lot of blood on the hands of this administration, for sure. And I fear for the residents of those that strip of states, you're talking about Texas, uh, Arizona, uh, New Mexico, uh, even into California, who have to be wary of their, their homestead. There have been cases of people getting murdered, having to protect the property. Uh, yeah, this, this administration is guilty of sin, of sin and, uh, and murder because uh, there's no doubt about it. Thanks a lot. Appreciate hey, it. Hey, thanks, Anthony in Tampa. Appreciate it. We'll talk to you again real soon. Take care. Uh, so what do you think, Frank? We got about, uh, we got about uh, 15 seconds. Yeah, I, I agree with everything he said, especially about the, the, tra- the trafficking, the human trafficking. If you haven't seen the, the movie Sound of Freedom, it's on Amazon Prime now. Watch it. The statistics at the end will curl your toes at how abhorrent we are by letting what's happening at the southern border happen. You're exactly right. Absolutely on my list. Frank Salvato, UndergroundUSA.com, author of the book Nullification. Thank you, my friend. We'll talk to you on Monday. Stay low, my friend. If you like the podcast, subscribe, leave a comment, rate it if your platform lets you. Be sure to head on over to undergroundusa.com to sign up for our Substack, which comes straight to you, circumventing the censors and the fact checkers, because we both know that they're worthless, and that's been proven over time. And be sure to pick up your copy of Nullification, the case for decentralizing the federal government, available in Kindle and paperback over at amazon.com. You're listening to Underground USA. My name is Frank Salvato, and we will be back right after this. This podcast is a production of the Compass Point Group.